Welcome to the podcast of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Greenwood, Mississippi. We are a community of Christians that exists to make disciples of Jesus Christ and influence the Delta for the glory of God. More information about Westminster can be found at www.wpcgreenwood.org. Kind of as we're transitioning, uh, if you are uh, visiting with us this morning, uh, welcome. I hope that uh, this morning is warm, uh, welcoming, and worshipful to you. Uh, so glad that you're here. Uh, you're catching us in the middle of uh, Luke. We've been going through the Gospel of Luke for quite some time now. This is our uh, Luke part 32, so 32nd sermon in Luke. Um, just letting you know, it's likely we're going to, like we did in the summer, pause uh, our regular series, and we're going to do just a, a shorter, more topical sermon series, it's our su- yeah, su- summer sermon series. Um, and then we'll be back at Luke when we come back in the fall. Um, so the Bible tells us that if anyone is in Christ, uh, that they are a new creation, right? That's like Gospel 101. Um, you know, we, we are born again in such a way that we see everything in a new way, right? That we have, uh, we serve a new king. We belong to a new kingdom. Uh, we have a completely new way of life. Uh, which means, though we continue to wrestle with our old self, we continue to kill sin, if we are in Jesus, the Spirit gives us uh, new affections and new goals in life, new, a, a new definition of what a win is for us. And look, this isn't just hot air that preachers like to talk about. I mean, this is throughout the history of the church. Uh, we have people that it's just full of stories where God has literally transformed the trajectory of their life. Y'all have heard of John Patton. Um, John Patton grew up in, really with a manufacturing background. Um, and But the Lord saved him, and he felt that the Lord was calling him out of the factory. He wasn't going to manufacture anymore, out of the factory to be a missionary to the islands of the South Pacific. But when he went to his church to talk to his elders, deacons, to kind of to get their blessing on his being a missionary, one of the elders just laughed at him and said, you'll be eaten by the cannibals. You can't go there. And so the elder wasn't just being a meanie, uh, because the guys who had gone just before John Patton to the same island uh, were eaten. Not, not days, but like literally hours after coming ashore, they were killed and eaten. Um, so he had a point. But Patton looked at that elder, and he said, Sir... You are getting older, and soon you too will be laid in the grave to be eaten by worms. Patton said, If I can but live and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus, it will make no difference to me whether I am eaten by cannibals or by worms. And on the great day, my resurrected body will rise as fair as yours in the likeness of our risen Redeemer. And then there's the other pioneer missionary, Adoniram Judson, who along with his wife Anne, they were pioneer missionaries in Burma. And, and knowing what lie before him, listen to the letter he wrote to Anne's father. I think I've shared this before, but um, he, he wrote a letter to Anne's father asking his permission to marry his uh, daughter. Adoniram wrote, I have now to ask whether you can consent to part with your daughter early next spring, to see her no more in this world, whether you can consent to her departure and her subjection to the hardships and sufferings of missionary life. Whether you can consent to her exposure to the dangers of the ocean, to the fatal influence of the southern climate of India, to every kind of want and distress, 
to degradation, insult, persecution, and perhaps a violent death. Can you consent to all this for the sake of him who left his heavenly home and died for her and for you, for the sake of perishing immortal souls, for the sake of Zion and the glory of God? Well, if you're the dad, how do you respond to that? You know, uh, Anne's dad did give him permission, and after the wedding, he never saw his daughter again. Um, she would die in Burma. All right, and look, I'm not sharing those two stories. It's kind of like this rah rah, like let's <laughs> let's get with it, uh, let's step it up and be like them. But rather, it's really to make us think. Because I, I don't know about you, but, but we can hear about all that. Uh, new creation, new king, new, new affections, transformational new way of life. And then we can look out at the Christianity around us. Uh, like the Christianity that we see maybe at school, at our work, around town. And uh, something's rotten in Denmark, as they say. Um, you start looking around and two plus two don't seem to be equal in four. And it's a known fact that Christianity in America has been secularized. I mean, that's like all the people who study the data, like that's, that's been known. Uh, what we think of as Christianity in America, or what our, how our culture defines Christianity, has sometimes little to do with how Scripture defines Christianity. And since that's the case, we have to regularly be reminded of the basics, don't we? It's like, what is the bounce pass? Uh, what is the layup of being a Christian? Uh, well, according to Scripture, what does it mean? Well, thankfully, that's what God tells us in our passage this morning. And so with that, this is God's good, uh, inspired uh, word to us. Uh, Luke chapter 9, 18 through 27. Now it happened that as Jesus was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And he asked them, who do the crowd say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist, but others say Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. Then Jesus said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, The Christ of God. And Jesus strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Jesus said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory, and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. This is God's word. And we could spend years on this topic as far as like, okay, what does it mean to be a Christian? Uh, you could spend years on that. And so this morning is just like the fundamentals, just the basics of Christianity. And so first we see that a Christian is someone who confesses Jesus to be Savior and Lord. A Christian is someone who has a confession. So Jesus begins by asking a very simple question, and yet really at the end of the day, it's the, it's the only question that truly matters. It's 
it's who do you, like not your grandparents, not your parents or your friends, not, not even your preacher, but who do you say Jesus is? Who do you say Jesus is? Oh, there are tons, tons of opinions about Jesus, right? Uh, even back then, some people feared, seemed to think. Uh, other people thought Jesus might be the prophet Elijah. You know, Jews were then and still are today. They're still waiting on Elijah to show up because the literal last words of their Bible, the Old Testament, talks about Elijah returning before that great and awesome day of the Lord. And so they believe that when things go down, Elijah's going to be there. And that's why to this day, you know, and I think we've noted this, we're aware of this, that during Jewish Seder meals, uh, it's tradition to set an extra place at the table, you know, an extra place just in case Elijah shows up at your house and he's hungry. Uh, you can give him something to eat. Or, you know, the people said, well, or maybe Jesus was some prophet of old, Jeremiah. You know, maybe he's Isaiah. Uh, but regardless, there was something uh, obviously extraordinary about Jesus' uh, comparisons. Uh, you know, it, all right, so I'll, I wonder this this week. If Jesus were to ask, like he asked his disciples, what does LaFleur County think about me? How would we answer that? What does Carroll, what does Carroll County people think about Jesus? Um, how would you answer that? Or, or what does the life of Westminster's members say we think about Jesus? Um, I mean, how would you answer that? Because it, it's not like anybody hates Jesus, right? I mean, even the most staunch atheists will say, I mean, Jesus is a good teacher, probably said some good things that changed the course of human history. Um, some might even say that Jesus is a good moral example for us to follow. You know, I've heard parents uh, talking to me about wanting to bring their kids to church here, saying, well, we just want to give our kids morals. We want to give our kids the morals. Um, well, in, in running the risk of overusing a quote, um, y'all know where we're going here. C.S. Lewis said, I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus, which is, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God, which that's like agnostic 101 right there, right? Um, this is the one thing we must not say. Lewis says, a man who was merely a man and said the sorts of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level of a man who says he is a poached egg, or he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman, or something worse. And so to Lewis, here are your options. And Lewis follows this out to its logical conclusion. Here are your options. He said, you can shut Jesus up for a fool. Forget him. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall on, his, on your feet, or fall at his feet, and call him Lord and God. But he said, but, but let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. So who is Jesus, who is Jesus to you? Well, when asked that question, Peter outkicked his covers, didn't he? Uh, Peter said, you are the Christ of God. Which means more than a teacher, more than a moral example, Jesus is the rescuer. So it means that Jesus is the only hope of bringing us 
well, he's the only hope in this fallen world, right? He's the only hope of restoring broken relationships, broken bodies. He's our only hope of bringing us back to our Heavenly Father. And so, to be a Christian, can I, can I walk, Johnny? Or am I tied to this? Johnny Smith? It is on. I'll just stay here. Uh, sorry. Uh, to be a Christian, a fundamental mark of being a Christian is to live your life confessing, knowing that you need a hero, that, that you need saving, which that's kind of countercultural to say, that, that you don't have it all together. You need a hero, and it's to take a stand and to declare that Jesus came to save sinners of whom you are, we are the foremost. To be a, a Christian is to say, if the Son has set you free, then you are free. You are free indeed. Uh, we are saved. But not only is he our Savior, um, but he's also our Lord, which is a whole nother, whole nother thing, right? It's, it means that there's not one molecule in this universe that Jesus does not say, mine. Which means he sits on the throne in our lives. Um, it, it means that he is Lord. He has ultimate say. And we live beneath his grace. We are his beloved, saved people, and he is our gracious, conquering king. That's the relationship. So a Christian is someone who confesses with their mouth and with their lives that Jesus is Savior and Jesus is Lord. All right, second, uh, we find here that a Christian is a, a lifelong learner, that, that we as Christians are students of the gospel for, for our and over our life, maybe even eternity, we could say. All right, so, so Peter's confession here, most scholars will, will argue that, that his confession that Jesus is the Christ is so far the, the high point in Luke's gospel. And it's good. I mean, anytime any of our friends or anyone we know confesses Jesus to be God and becomes, quote, saved, like that's a reason to celebrate, right? So you would think they would at least take in time to give each other high fives. Good job, Peter. But notice what Jesus did, verse 21, literally the next verse. Jesus strictly charged and commanded them not to tell anyone. Um, and then he went straight into telling them how he would suffer and, and that he would uh, be rejected, that he would be killed, but on the third day he would rise again from the dead. Okay, so that is, that's bothered scholars for a long time. For centuries, people have asked the question, okay, why wouldn't Jesus just let him tell others that he was the Christ? What's <laughs> the harm in that, right? But according to Phil Riken, it's obvious, and if we really think about it, it's obvious that the disciples at this point were just beginning to understand who Jesus was. They still didn't know the full gospel, the full, the full good news that Jesus would accomplish. And so this is a reason why you know, the Bible, in the qualifications for elders and churches, uh, one of the qualifications is that they need to have been a Christian for a while. Um, because so far to them, Jesus was, was going to be a political savior. And he was going to make Israel great again. And, and he was going to kick out Rome. And, and they would all have shiny, happy lives. Go, Jesus. Sorry. And, and, and that's why Jesus told them that, look, I came to die. Like, I came to be the suffering servant mentioned in Isaiah. Uh, that, that there's so much more to what I came to do than what you're thinking. And so Jesus wanted them to learn 
And if they had went out at this point, they would have given everyone the wrong idea about Jesus, wouldn't they? Uh, that the, their gospel message would get all mixed up in politics and moralism and just uh, maybe just another humanist how to be a better fill in the blank type of a sermon. You know, this, this message, their message wouldn't be about Jesus giving you peace with God, um, but Jesus giving you kind of pretty good life now. And, and, and so much damage, and dare I say, so much spiritual abuse has come from the hands of people who don't understand the full gospel of God's grace. Preaching, teaching Sunday school, parenting. Um, it, it either creates strict fundamentalism of doing more and trying harder and we'll never live up and we're constantly doubting our salvation, or the other end of the spectrum, it can lead to antinomianism, which says God, God's grace is so good, then to heck with everything else. Right? I mean, I mean to, to, to heck with trying to be holy. The heck we're trying to obey him. Let's just sin so that we can have more grace. Sounds pretty good. Um, or the gospel becomes about prosperity. It becomes about social justice. It becomes about some secondary thing that the gospel isn't primarily about, and on and on and on, right? And, and so Jesus wants us to constantly be learning the depths of his grace and constantly learning what it means to follow him in this stage of life. And then the next stage of life, what does it mean as a parent, as a kid, as a retiree? Uh, what does it mean to be a lifelong learner of the gospel? That's what it is to be a Christian. Which then brings us to our third point. Uh, a Christian is an unashamed follower of Jesus. Unashamed follower of Jesus. All right, what does that mean? Um, well, in our, our passage, we see that it means a couple things. And again, these are just the basics, but, but before we dive in here, a reality check. This is from James Boyce. James Boyce said, for many of today's supposed Christians, perhaps even the majority, is what he says, it is the case that while there is much talk about Christ and even much furious activity that is supposed to be done in his name, there's actually very little following of Christ himself. And that means that in some circles, at least, there's very little genuine Christianity. That's pretty piercing. Uh, James Davidson Hunter is a uh, sociologist who specializes in uh, studying culture and religion and, and, and especially how those two match up together. And all of his studies suggest that, get this, that modern evangelicalism, modern American evangelicalism, in general, is self-focused. It's really about you, uh, is what it all boils down to. Modern evangelicalism seems to care less and less about the glory of God, reaching the loss, and more and more about Christianity enhancing our own lives, you know, enhancing our marriages, our bank accounts, our reputation, which uh, the gospel does enhance at least some of those areas, right? But to hear of authentic Christianity, as, it, as we find it in Scripture, to hear things like bearing our own crosses and self-denial, and we say, ugh, how un-American, right? Um, well, that may explain some of the disconnect that we see. Because first, Jesus tells us as plain as day that following him requires death to self. Like, it requires self-denial. Which means we abdicate the throne of our lives to him. It means that we can't just go our own way, 
Um, but we have to go his way. Following him is going his way. So to deny self means to renounce the notion that we can fill ourselves and, and that, that you can find life apart from Jesus Christ. And it's a change of identity that you have been bought with a price. You are not your own, but you belong body and soul to Jesus. And so we die to ourselves in loving our enemies as Christ loved us, right? Um, by loving our neighbors. We, we die to self in how we interact with our spouses, right? Even like picking where we're going to eat or whatever. It's like, ugh. But we die to ourselves. Part of denying self is repenting of our sin, right? Uh, it's being honest that, look, we've never heard of a sin that we don't like. We love sin. And it's to be honest about that, and yet to know that because of Jesus' death on the cross for us, he's actually empowered us to kill sin, right? That it's not the bully it used to be. And so we can freely deny ourselves because Jesus freely gives us grace. He grants us his grace. And so, when was the last time you denied yourself simply because you follow Jesus, right? When was the last, I mean, have you? Um, and look, I know, I know the world will say, oh, how oppressive, you poor soul. But true followers know the truth, don't we? That we, we know that there is tremendous freedom and joy in self-forgetfulness, in self-denial, following Jesus. Our second part of following, following Christ means bearing a cross. We see that there in verse 23. Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. That's the first part. And take up his cross daily and follow me. And we talked about this. I mean, there's a misunderstanding with this verse because many of us, or I've even noticed, view this as hardships and trials of life. And, you know, you may hear people almost joking about their spouse say, yeah, the old ball and chain. It's, uh, it's my cross to bear, right? Or, or something like that. It's uh, life as a non-Alabama fan in the SEC West, right? It's our cross to bear. It's a heavy, heavy cross. Or, you know, people you know, think, oh, it's that annoying family member, that just difficult co-worker, whatever. That, that, that's, it's my cross to bear. I'm going to do it for God's glory. Um, okay. That, I mean, that's, that's not entirely what Jesus was talking about because the reality is that you can bear those things all the way to hell. And, like, some of that is just life in this broken world, this fallen world. Um, so a, a cross comes from bearing disdain um, simply because we are following the narrow way of Jesus. It's, it's being excluded, rejected, persecuted for following Jesus, right? Um, it, it comes from living out the Jesus way, especially when it's unpopular in the marketplace, community, the world. Crosses come from standing true in difficult circumstances for the sake of the gospel. And so it's walking by faith into the jaws of a world where being Christian, being a Christian isn't that sexy. Um, you know, holding to orthodox uh, sexual ethics, family ethics, you know, teachings that are in the Bible and, and following that in a world where that just ain't, that's not too sexy. Let's don't do that. It's living life in Jesus's name. And so I want to ask you, with, with that definition of cross-bearing, are you following the Jesus way? Uh, are you taking up that cross daily and following? 
Well, third, under this point, uh, following means uh, new priorities in our life. New priorities. You know, every, every culture in, in the world says that there are some things you must have, and if you acquire those things, then you have life. You get those things, then you have made it. And in traditional cultures, it's typically family. You know, if you have a lot of kids, if you have family, then you are blessed. Uh, in, in America, that has, has shifted over time to where now it's really kind of becoming about stuff, right? You, if you have certain stuff, certain things, then you've made it. If you have your dream home, you have your, maybe your dream spouse. It's, it's vacations and wine tastings and cute pets and 1.5 kids, whatever that means, right? And, uh, oh, and if you could stay in beach body shape, that'd be great too. Just put that on the end. Um, well, well, to borrow from the theologian Miley Cyrus, right? Miley Cyrus, <laughs> Jesus comes into the American version of the good life. He comes into the American version of the good life like a wrecking ball, doesn't he? By saying, what does it profit a man? If he gains the whole, like, you got it all, and yet loses or forfeits himself. You know, in other translations you've probably seen, and loses, or you found the word soul, you know, loses his soul, forfeits his soul. Um, talk about a sobering verse, wow. You know, to live your life like everyone else. Yeah, I'm just doing what everybody else is doing, only to get to the end and find that you have no life. But Jesus is saying you can have it all and yet not have him, and, and, and we got nothing. You got nothing. So what does it profit a man? What does it profit a woman if, if they have the best house and the finest clothes, the most beautiful family? You've played the game as good as anyone else. What does it profit you to have the biggest farm and you have the respect of all your farmers? What does it profit you to have the, the best business, to have the fullest social calendar, and yet not have Jesus? You know, what does it profit us to give our kids the charmed life? You know, to, to give our kids the baseball, dance, soccer, Disney, the beach, like, like all the things, right? And yet not give them Jesus. And well, we've, we've missed it. Um, I'm sure y'all have heard of Charlemagne, King Charlemagne. Uh, he was one of the most powerful Roman emperors uh, or emperors in the Roman Empire of all time. Well, um, like all great people, at some point he died, right? And so 180 years after he was buried, another emperor, Emperor Otho, uh, wanted to open up his tomb. Let's dig it up, see what's in there. And, and allegedly, after they cracked it open, it was a sight to behold. Because King Charlemagne was buried with, with I mean, all sorts of like, incredible treasures just all around him in his tomb. <laughs> and there in his tomb, the skeletal remains of King Charlemagne were seated on a throne in his tomb. Like He has a, a throne in his tomb, and he is sitting on the throne, and his crown was still on his skull when they opened up his tomb. <laughs> and yet, surrounded by all these treasures, seated on a throne with a crown on his head. They said that they found a copy of the gospel was laying open in his lap and a bony finger was pointing to one verse, one text, 
Guess what it was? It was, for what does it profit a man? This is like one of the most powerful emperors of all time. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? You know, following Jesus is a call to new priorities. It's, uh, it, don't reject all the cool things, obviously, of this world. Um, no, enjoy them as, well, as God's good creation. But just know that, as, as the Bible says, our flesh and our heart and our stuff will fail. But God is the strength of our heart and our portion forever. So following Jesus means seeing the eternal value of our Savior, and it's, it's prioritizing the means of grace that He has given us to know and grow more in Him. Um, so it means that as Christians, we set a premium on God's Word, and we set a premium on prayer, and we set a premium on worshiping together with other believers, and we set a premium on fellowship with other Christians. It's, it's, it's new priorities. Um, yeah, look, do all these other things, great. They're, they're wonderful things, but, but these, are, these are premium. These are the most important. New priorities. Which then brings us to our fourth and final uh, basic of Christianity. Uh, a Christian lives with the hope of a beautiful future. We are hopeful. You know, we have a beautiful future. You know, our passage mentions the kingdom of God, and, and Jesus came to make this new way of life possible, right? It's to walk before God's face. Imagine this. To walk before God's face as a forgiven and loved son and daughter of God. And, and so Jesus came and he died to inaugurate this new way of life. And so in him, we're already living in this kingdom. It's true of us now. If you're in Christ, then you live before the face of a smiling God. We have that now, and yet we also know that his kingdom isn't fully consummated, that there's still pain here and there's still sin. And that's why Jesus promised when he returns that he will once and for all make all things new. And we need that promise, don't we? You know, in 1952, some of y'all may remember this, uh, Florence Chaffee, she was a, a young lady who loved to swim, and so she decided that she was going to try to be the first woman to swim the Catalina Channel. You know, it's that 21 miles of open ocean between the coast of California out to Catalina Island, like off the coast of California. Um, and so she's, I'm going I'm to swim it. And so it, it, it was impossibly difficult. The water was ice cold. Uh, the fog was super thick. The current was against her. And then apparently there are sharks like everywhere in the Pacific Ocean. Didn't know that. But sharks were there. <laughs> they, they said that the people on her support boats that were kind of putting along beside her, they had to shoot the sharks to, to keep them away from her. So after 15 hours of swimming, she started begging to be taken out of the water. She, she told her mom, who was in one of the boats, that she didn't think she could make it. Well, 55 minutes later, almost 16 hours after she began swimming, they pulled her out of the water half a mile from Catalina Island. She's almost there. Just half a mile. In an interview, she said, it was so foggy, I couldn't see land. I had no idea where I was. And then she said, if I could have seen the land, I know I could have made it. Westminster and friends, isn't that how the Christian life so often can be? Um, that 
um, often the water's ice cold. And the tides will be against us, and sharks are like trying to eat us. And it's hard. We, we, we just can't, we just don't know. But because of the good news that Jesus died and Jesus rose for us, rose for you, because of that reality, we can see through the fog to the other side that just as Jesus rose, one day so will we. And so following Christ in this life, it is a hard road. It's really hard, but it's so worth it because it's a long, hard road with a good, good end. So, y'all, God promises us uh, that the best is yet to come. Amen? Amen. Well, let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your word again uh, that gives us uh, a recalibration to our souls, true north. Uh, Lord, we ask that you would recalibrate our souls this morning, uh, this afternoon, even as we get ready to go back to work, back to life uh, tomorrow. Uh, Lord, thank you for Jesus um, that we aren't just swimming in the middle of fog and we don't know where we're going, that you have promised us a, a final destination. Uh, Lord, you've, te you've told us where it is, and may we cling to Jesus in the meantime. Thank you for the means of grace. Thank you for other believers. Thank you for your word. Thank you for prayer. Uh, thank you for worship. Uh, Lord, may we cling to those, and may you continue to transform us and make us new. And we ask this. In Christ's name, amen. Hi, Richard Owens here. I just wanted to take a second to say thank you for listening to the podcast of Westminster Presbyterian Church. Our prayer is that the Lord would use this message to encourage you in the gospel and that you would find Jesus to be more beautiful than you ever, ever imagined. If you'd like to find out more about who Jesus is or more about our church, I invite you to visit our website at wpcgreenwood.org. God bless.